This evening's talk is about Samvega, spiritual urgency. What are the seeds that bring you to practice? What are the seeds that brought you to a retreat like this particular one? We'll begin the talk this evening with a few questions, some of which have probably visited your mind and heart over the years. These questions that humans have felt and asked forever and ever, regardless of culture, regardless of history. These murmurings of the heart, the deep questions and yearnings that have been going on in us for as long as there have been human beings. What is life about? What is this thing called death? Can I be happy? Can I be at ease in this life? What do I need to be truly happy and at ease in this life? Can I or how can I live gracefully and peacefully in this life with all of the challenges and difficulties in this constantly changing world? With all of the challenges within me and all around me? What is it that brings me to practice? And again, why am I here in this retreat? Our practice isn't about getting caught or mulling or stewing over these questions. But rather these questions can be taken in as a motivating force and an inspiration towards connecting to and dropping more and more deeply into our practice. This evening's talk is about an urgency to awaken. And the Pali term for this is Samvega, which is most often translated into English as spiritual urgency. But actually, it's a term that's quite difficult uh, to render into English because it includes quite a number of different mind states. In the classical Buddhist texts, the force or the energy of samvega is spoken about as one being moved or stirred to a sense of urgency to practice. And the classical text goes on to say, that samvega is also about one being moved to a sense of urgency within practice itself. Moved to a sense of urgency within practice itself by what should move one, followed by the systematic effort of one so moved. So samvega is the urgency to practice, and an urgency 
to awaken. It's an energy that's not at all fraught with a tense or frantic or obsessive quality. But rather it's a quality of mind and heart that very often comes out of some degree of understanding the natural laws, some degree of understanding the way of things, some degree of understanding how it is. And so let's look at this for a few moments. For some of you, Samvega may have been sensed, first felt maybe, as the endlessness of the round and round and round in daily life. Others may have felt a certain urgency through some degree of the perception of change, the perception of anicca, impermanence. And in seeing and sensing and knowing mental and physical phenomena continuously arising and disappearing in this, maybe in a gross way, or maybe also in some of its more subtle forms. And the attendant unsatisfactoriness of things because of this. For some of you, the sense of urgency, samvega, may be experienced through feeling the enormity or maybe even the subtleties of the physical and mental hardships and challenges of life. The suffering in life from this particular perspective, in general, or maybe more specifically in ways in your own life. For some, the urgency to practice and the urgency to awaken comes from what might be a long, accustomed, or possibly a new sight in relationship to the mental pain felt in observing or directly experiencing bias or prejudice in relationship to race or culture or economic conditions, circumstances, or gender or age or sexual preference. Along with any of these experiences and the accompanying mental pain you may also have experienced a vague or maybe not so vague a sense that it really doesn't have to be this way, that there's another way. And an urge then to move towards this potential other way. When Samvega first strikes us, stirs us, it may be an emotional state that is somewhat difficult or maybe somewhat disturbing until it finds a clear and healthy direction to connect to. One of the really wonderful attributes of this stirring energy of Samvega is that it itself has the power to move us in a clear and healthy way towards finding a wholesome direction to connect to. I think that 
it's important to note at this point that continuing all along the way of our practice, for each and every one of us sitting in this room right now, Samvega is an essential and motivating energy of successful practice. From my own experience, I would describe Samvega as an experience of being stirred and inspired. It's stirred and inspired to a sense of urgency by phenomena that goes on within my own body-mind process and by phenomena that goes on in the world around me. Happenings that I may be directly involved with in some way or happenings that I'm just simply an observer of, such as the great misunderstandings and confusions that are currently occurring in the world and the often violent reactions that are perpetrated from all sides because of this. Samvega is the movement of the heart, an inner response, both within our formal meditation practice as well as outside of our formal meditation practice. And for me, it's really the movement of my heart to let go deeper and deeper into my practice. It's really this flavor of Samvega that stirs and moves me again and again and again towards letting go, towards relinquishing the painful contraction, however strong or subtle it is, of clinging to anything. When Samvega is present, it may sometimes be experienced as an ardency, a very inspired heart and mind, a passion for spiritual practice, something that I'm sure at least some of you, if not all of you or each of you, have felt at times. And at least in part, maybe what brought you here to this retreat. As a Dharma teacher, your ardency and your sincerity in and with your practice, it really moves and inspires me. And I think it's quite safe to say that this is true of all of the people that I've had the honor to teach with. It's one of the wonderful aspects of us, all of us being here together right now, yogis and teachers alike, of living in a practice community such as this, even if it's just for a short while. We move and we inspire each other to deeper and deeper levels of practice. So even more specifically from the perspective of the Dhamma, what is it that moves and inspires us towards practicing? And what 
along the way of our practice keeps urging us and moving us towards sustaining and deepening our practice. There's a a beautiful account of how Prince, Prince Siddhartha Gautama came face to face with what are called the four heavenly messengers while being driven in his chariot through the royal city after all of his youthful years of isolation in a kind of make-believe world. This account of his seeing old age, sickness, death, and a person dedicated to understanding the truth, a person dedicated to awakening. And maybe this story is more than just symbolic or metaphorical. Considering the possibility that these four heavenly messengers, these four messengers are heavenly messengers as they're called, these four very common events of life, old age, sickness, death, and though not so common in our time and culture, the many and quite obvious truth seekers that were so much a part of the time and the culture that Siddhartha grew up in. Considering the possibility that the great and ripe mind of young Siddhartha on those morning chariot rides saw and experienced these very common aspects of life much more deeply than had ever occurred for him before to such a degree that he was urgently moved to leave the riches and ease and comfort of his existence, to search for the true nature of life. He was profoundly touched during those chariot rides by the overt physical and mental challenges and hardships the suffering in life that he witnessed as he took in these very common four events of life. Siddhartha's story tells us that this young man was inspired and moved to be liberated, inspired and urgently stirred towards awakening from the ache of delusion in relationship to the complacent lull and very familiar habits of his everyday life. Isn't it really the same case with us? That most of the time, with the many, many times that we've seen these same messengers in our own life, both outwardly and inwardly, that we've reacted. Reacted by maybe ignoring them or by distracting ourselves in myriad ways by where and how we spend our time. We've reacted by what we do with the various manifestations of our 
aging body. Or even by pretending or maybe even believing that something else is happening. Until somehow at least one of these messengers touches us so deeply that instead of reacting, we respond. And we respond, in fact, in a similar way as did Siddhartha, by being moved and inspired to seek a path of truth and wisdom. We're somehow, at some point, stirred to walk a different path than constantly feeling overrun with sadness, anguish, or fear, overrun with attachment, or anger, or confusion, in relationship to the very natural occurrences of life. Our closest surroundings are full of stirring things. Stirring in the sense of samvega. If we don't generally perceive, perceive them as such, isn't it really because of our habits? The habits that, in fact, render our vision dull and render our heart insensitive or reactive. And this can even happen to us in relationship to the Buddha's teaching. We may have encountered times of very powerful intellectual, emotional, or spiritual stimulation in relationship to the teachings and the practices. But at times, even this impetus can lose its freshness and lose its impelling force as maybe some of you have experienced. The remedy for this is to constantly renew the freshness of the teachings and practice by just simply turning to the fullness of life within us and the fullness of life around us, which if we look really carefully it constantly illustrates what the Buddha called the Four Noble Truths in ever new variations. Illustrating the first truth of what suffering is, what it really is. Which, very simply put, is the lack of any thoroughly sustaining deep satisfaction in relationship to our expectations and the natural unfolding regarding the round and round and round of daily life. And if we continue to look into the fullness of life within us and surrounding us, we'll begin to sense and to see the cause, the origin of this unsatisfactoriness this suffering, which is the second of the Four Noble Truths, which again, put simply, essentially is a clinging relationship to what can't be clung to. And the third truth, the third Noble Truth, 
the truth that, in fact, there's a potential end to this suffering. There's a solution to this predicament. The solution being to not cling, but rather to see things utterly clearly and simply be with them just as they are. And the fourth truth of being, this being the way of putting this solution into effect, putting it into effect via the path, the path of practice offered by the Buddha, that each one of you are engaged in walking, about, walking along at your own pace, right here, right now, in this very life, in this very retreat. As some of you have experienced and know, sometimes quite unexpectedly, a degree of understanding of one or more of these truths can show up. For instance, with what might be a fresh seeing of our habitual reactions of fear or anger or grief or yearning or clinging and the self-identification that's embedded in each of these habitual reactive habit patterns. Or insight, wisdom might arise unexpectedly in relationship to a long accustomed sight of some manifestation of poverty. Or in relationship to seeing a weeping child or in relationship to the distress of someone you regularly have some degree of contact with, or maybe in relationship to an unaccustomed connection with the physical or mental illness of a loved one, or one's own illness or bodily discomfort, or myriad other flavors of our existence our experience. With any of these experiences having the power to startle us, we could say, meaning to promote a reflective response and to stir a sense of urgency in our resolve to sincerely and deeply practice this path that leads to the cessation of suffering. through seeing our own experience of body and mind directly, clearly, and more and more subtly, we might be stirred and moved by seeing the changing, impermanent, ephemeral, selfless, and totally impersonal nature of things. Something that is, of course, very available for each of us, any moment. For instance, a moment or maybe successive moments of directly and deeply experiencing and knowing the 
constantly changing nature of things. Or a moment of knowing that it's all impersonal. It's all anatta. Mental and physical phenomena just absolutely naturally changing, arising, and passing according to conditions. With these moments of sensing and seeing and knowing, we are often urgently stirred and inspired to go deeper in our already chosen path. Go deeper towards the ending of suffering. Or, depending on circumstances, to recommit to our practice. Samvega asks us, we could say, to step out of our everyday, ordinary, conditioned habits. To step out of our conditioned inertia. Each one of us have many, many stories, many experiences that come out of our pursuit of a spiritual life, and of course, many stories within our life as a whole. Stories that, in fact, often exhibit this knowing and the manifestation of Samvega. It's often part of what I hear from students during practice interviews. There are a number of really wonderful stories and dialogues in the suttas telling uh, of the Buddha's disciples being stirred up towards practicing with a more vital spiritual urgency. The stirring being done by the Buddha himself, or the stirring being done by one of the arhans, one of the enlightened disciples, or being done by the practicing, one of the practicing devas. And in case you don't already know, devas are beings whose practice has brought them to be dwelling for lengths and sometimes very long lengths of time in beautiful states, but who aren't yet awakened aren't yet enlightened, aren't yet completely free of suffering. There's a section of short suttas in the Samyutta Nikaya called Connected Discourses in the Woods, where various woodland-dwelling devas approach certain monks, certain bhikkhus, who are practicing in these woodland thickets. And I'd like to share a few of these encounters with you. On one occasion, a certain bhikkhu was dwelling among the Kosalans in a particular woodland, woodland thicket. And on this particular occasion, the bhikkhu had gone to his spot in the forest for his day of practice. But all the while, he kept thinking thoughts of strong desire connected with the household life. And then the deva that inhabited this woodland thicket, having compassion for that bhikkhu and desiring his good, desiring to stir up a sense of urgency in him, approached him and addressed him in verse. 
And this is the sutta. Desiring seclusion, this is the bhikkhu, or the uh, deva speaking. Desiring seclusion, you entered the woods, yet your mind gushes outwardly. Remove man, the desire for people. Then you'll be happy, devoid of lust. And lust meaning not necessarily just sexual lust, but lust for things, for food, for various objects and various experiences. And then the deva goes on. You must abandon discontent. Be mindful. Let us remind you of that way of the good. Hard to cross, indeed, is the dusty abyss. Don't let sensual dust drag you down. Just as a bird littered with soil, with a shake, flicks off the sticky dust. So a bhikkhu, or a yogi, strenuous and mindful, with a shake, flicks off the sticky dust. Then that bhikkhu, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. The next dialogue takes place shortly after the Buddha's Parinibbana, Parinibbana, uh, after his death. And his closest attendant and cousin, Ananda, had been very strongly encouraged to attain arhanship before the first Buddhist council convened, which was scheduled to begin during the next rains retreat. Ananda had gone to the Kosalan country and entered into a forest abode to meditate. But when the people uh, uh, living in that area found out that he was there, they continually came to him, lamenting over the death of the Buddha. And so Ananda felt uh, that he had to constantly instruct them in the law of impermanence. Well, the forest-dwelling deva, who lived in that same area, aware that the upcoming Buddhist council could, su- could succeed only if Ananda attended as an arahant, came to provoke and to inspire him to resume his meditation practice. And this is the sutta. On one occasion, the vetero- venerable Ananda was dwelling among the Kosalans in a certain woodland thicket. Now on that occasion, the venerable Ananda was excessively involved in instructing lay people. Then the deva that inhabited that woodland thicket, having compassion for venerable Ananda, desiring his good, desiring to stir up a sense of urgency in him, approached him and addressed him in verse. And this is the deva speaking. Having entered the thicket at the foot of a tree, having placed Nibbana in your heart, meditate, Gotama. Now, because Ananda was the Buddha's cousin, he had the same family name uh, as of Gotama. Meditate, Gotama, and don't be negligent. What will all this hullabaloo do for you? Then the venerable Ananda, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. Now, I picked this particular dialogue uh, because, of course, we're not in the same position as Ananda was. But we are certainly often quite caught up, quite seduced 
by the seeming necessity for us to engage in the hullabaloo of various circumstances, both externally and the hullabaloo internally, and neglect and maybe even lose our practice, and instead go for these things. To me, this particular little verse uh, beautifully um, and clearly points out the importance of keeping our priorities straight and clear. Not to, to neglect what needs to be attended to, but to know when we're seduced unnecessarily and maybe even inappropriately into the hullabaloo. And another verse. On one occasion, a certain bhikkhuni was dwelling in Visali in a certain woodland thicket. Now, on that occasion, an all-night party was being held in Visali. And then that bhikkhuni, lamenting that as she heard the clamor of instruments and gongs and music coming from Visali, recited this verse. We dwell in the forest all alone, like a log rejected in the woods. On such a splendid night as this, who is there worse off than us? Then the deva that inhabited that woodland thicket, having compassion for that bhikkhuni, desiring her good, desiring to stir up a sense of urgency in her, approached her and addressed her in verse. As you dwell in the forest, all alone, like a log rejected in the woods, many are those who yearn for your state, a forest dweller subsisting on alms food, with few wishes, content. Many are those who envy you, as hell beings envy those in in heaven realms. Then that bhikkhuni, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. The next verse is regarding a bhikkhu who continued thinking thoughts of ill will and harming, as well as quite potent thoughts of sensuality while he was practicing in the woods one day. The deva, who also inhabited this same woodland, out of compassion and wishing to stir up some vega in him, spoke these verses to this bhikkhu. Because of attending carelessly, you, sir, are eaten by your thoughts. Having relinquished relinquished the careless way, meaning having relinquished let go of attending to things as permanent, as self, as desirable because they're pleasurable, having relinquished the careless way, you should reflect carefully, meaning attending to their true nature, their true characteristics with a very careful attention, attending to them as impermanent, not self, and thus unsatisfactory in nature. So the bhikkhu, again, you should reflect carefully. And then the deva goes on to say, by basing your thoughts in the teacher, 
and in this case, meaning the Buddha, on the Dhamma, on the Sangha, and on your own virtues, you will surely attain to gladness, and then rapture and happiness as well. And when you are suffused with gladness, you'll make an end to suffering. Then the bhikkhu, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. The last verse that I'd like to share with you is about a bhikkhu who, after returning from his alms rounds and then eating his meal in the woodland thicket where he practiced every day, he would then go down into a nearby pond and sniff a red lotus. And when the deva who lived there uh, in that same thicket saw this, she thought, Having received a meditation subject from the Buddha and entered into the forest to meditate, this bhikkhu is instead meditating on the scent of flowers. If his craving for scent increases, it will destroy his welfare. Let me draw near and reproach him. So, out of compassion and wishing to stir up an urgency for the monk to practice with more diligence, the deva addressed the bhikkhu as follows. And the deva speaking, when you sniff this lotus flower, an item that has not been given, this is one factor of theft. You, dear sir, are a thief of scent. And the bhikkhu responds, I do not take, I do not damage. I sniff the lotus from afar. So what, for what reason do you say that I am a thief of scent? One who digs up the lotus stalks, one who damages the flowers, one of such rough behavior, why is he not spoken to? And the deva says, when a person is rough and fierce, badly soiled like a nursing cloth, I have nothing to say to him. But it is to you, that I ought to speak. For a person without blemish, always in quest of purity, even a mere hair's tip of evil appears as big as a cloud. And the bhikkhu responds, Surely, spirit, you understand me, and you have compassion for me. Oh, please, O spirit, speak to me again whenever you see such a deed. And the deva responds with, I found to be quite a surprise ending. The deva says, we don't live with your support, nor are we your hired servant. You, bhikkhu, should know for yourself the way to a good destination. Then that bhikkhu, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. So it seems that amongst those of us then and now, those who over 2,500 years ago were devoted to the teachings and the practices of the Buddha, and those of us right here and now, it seems that 
things haven't changed much. Our human predicament crosses time and cultures. The teachings are truly timeless. The solution that the Buddha offered to our karmic predicament is as relevant today as it was in India when these verses were originally spoken. When Samvegas kept alive or renewed in various ways and to varying degrees, we experience a release of energy, virya in Pali, and courage that helps the development and the blossoming of faith, which is Pali, the Pali word is sada, and confidence, Pali word being pasada. Each of these qualities, energy, courage, faith, and confidence, are essential in helping us to break through what for some of you might be some degree of a sense of timidity or maybe hesitation or some degree of fear or doubt or maybe some degree of complacency. The Buddha countless times and in countless ways exhorted his followers to arouse some vega. And in speaking to a group of his disciples in one sutta, he says, rouse yourselves, sit up. What good is there in sleeping? And in this case, meaning the sleep of ignorance and the sleep of delusion. What good is there in sleeping? For those afflicted by disease or dis-ease, meaning the dis-ease of suffering, the dis-ease of constant dissatisfaction. For those afflicted by disease, struck by the arrow of craving. What sleep is there? Rouse yourself, sit up. Resolutely train yourself to attain peace. Go beyond this clinging to the pleasures of the six sense doors which humans and most devas are attached to and which they seek. Don't waste your opportunity. When the opportunity has passed, they sorrow when consigned to the realms of suffering, the realms of confusion and anguish. And the Buddha goes on to say, negligence is a taint, and so is the greater negligence growing from it. By earnestness and understanding, withdraw the arrow. The traditional metaphor for practice is that it crosses over the stream to the further shore. The Buddhist attitude towards life is about keeping one foot, so to say, out of the mainstream and on the ground, the ground of a sense of spiritual urgency, samvega. The Buddha was so confident in the solution he found to the predicament of the unsatisfactory round, the cycle of birth, aging, and death, which is actually occurring moment 
to moment to moment in our life, breath by breath, that not only does he ask us to not close our eyes to this reality, but to also engage in a moment-to-moment observation of the cycle and to be completely honest with ourselves in the process. And the Buddha's confidence was so clear and strong that he called the reality of this unsatisfactory round the first noble truth which from this perspective we could say is really a gift that confirms our most sensitive and direct experience of things. And then from the gift of this first noble truth, the Buddha asks us to become even more sensitive, even more sensitive to the point where we see, where we know that the true cause of suffering is not out there, not somewhere out there, not coming from some outside experience or, or some outside being, but that it's coming from in here. In here, in the craving and the clinging and the fear that's present in our own mind. And then the Buddha, in his great confidence, coming directly from his own experience, and often using himself as an example, confirms that there's an end to suffering, that there's a very available release from the cycle. And he offers us a way to that release by the development of particular qualities of mind, particular noble qualities of heart and mind. Moral or Ethical responsibility, sila. Concentration, mindfulness, clear comprehension, energy, joy and happiness, tranquility, equanimity, loving kindness, compassion, faith, confidence. All of these qualities and capacities really sprouting out of the original energy of spiritual urgency, this samvega, that led us at one point to look for a solution to our predicament. Our predicament has a very practical solution, a solution that's within the power of every human being a solution that those of you here have certainly begun to have a growing faith in. Possibly, in part at least, through reading and studying the many stories, the many teachings within the enormous breadth of the Buddha's discourses. But most importantly, what you've come to know out of your own direct experience through your own practice. So the Buddhist attitude towards life both cultivates samvega and is also the solution or the path that develops out of a sense of spiritual urgency, out of samvega. As our faith in the 
solution to our predicament grows, as it develops and as it deepens. For many of us, it, in a sense, is what gives us the energy to live. The last story I'd like to share with you this evening is maybe um, a somewhat unlikely one from uh, the contemporary writer Annie Dillard. It's a story that I've found to be uh, very inspiring and that invoked a spiritual urgency in me the first time that I read it many years ago and that continues to move me every time I read it. So these are a few excerpts from a chapter called Living Like Weasels from Annie Dillard's book, Teaching a Stone to Talk. I've been reading about weasels because I saw one last week. I startled a weasel who startled me and we exchanged a long glance. Weasel I'd never seen one wild before. He was ten inches long, thin as a curve, a muscled ribbon, brown as fruit wood, soft furred, alert. His face was fierce, small, and pointed as a lizard's. He would have made a good arrowhead. There was just a dot of chin, maybe two brown hairs worth, and then the pure white fur began that spread down his underside. He had two black eyes I didn't see any more than you see a window. The weasel was stunned into stillness as he was emerging from beneath an enormous, shaggy, wild rose bush four feet away. I was stunned into stillness, twisted backward on the tree trunk. Our eyes locked, and someone threw away the key. Our look was as if two lovers or deadly enemies met unexpectedly on an overgrown path when each had been thinking of something else. A clearing blow to the gut, It was also a bright blow to the brain or a sudden beating of brains with all the charge and intimate grate of rubbed balloons. It emptied our lungs, it felled the forest, moved the fields fields and drained the pond. The world dismantled and tumbled into that black hole of eyes. He disappeared. That was only last week, and already I don't remember what shattered the enchantment. I think I blinked. I think I retrieved my brain from the weasel's brain and tried to memorize what I was seeing, and the weasel felt the yank of separation. I waited motionless, my mind suddenly full of data, and my spirit with pleadings, but he didn't return. I tell you, I've been in that weasel's brain for 60 seconds, and he was in mine. Brains are private places, muttering through unique and secret tapes. But the weasel and I both plugged into another tape simultaneously for a sweet and shocking time. Can I help if it was a blank? I would like to learn or remember how to live. I don't think I can learn from a wild animal how to live in particular but I might learn something of the purity of living in the physical senses and the dignity of living without bias or motive. The weasel lives in necessity, and we live in choice, hating necessity and dying at last ignobly in its talons. I would like to live as I should. I suspect that for me the way is like the weasels, open to time and death painlessly, noticing everything, remembering nothing, choosing the given with a fierce and pointed will.
I remember muteless, mutinous as a prolonged and giddy fast, where every moment is a feast of utterance received. Time and events are merely poured, unremarked, and ingested directly like blood pulsed, pulsed into my gut through a jugular vein. We can live any way we want. People take vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, even of silence, by choice. The thing is to stalk your calling in a certain skilled and supple way, to locate the most tender and live spot and plug into that pulse. This is yielding, not fighting. A weasel doesn't attack anything. A weasel lives as he's meant to, yielding at every moment to the perfect freedom of single necessity. I think it would be well and proper and obedient and pure to grasp your one necessity and not let go, to dangle from it limp wherever it takes you. Though then death, then even death, where you're going no matter how you live, cannot you part. Seize it and let it seize you up aloft even, till your eyes burn out and drop. Let your musky flesh fall off in shreds. Let your very bones unhinge and scatter, loosened over fields, over fields and woods, lightly, thoughtless, from any height at all, from as high as eagles. I would like to learn or remember how to live. I would like to live as I should, and I suspect that for me the way is like the weasels, open to time and death painlessly, noticing everything remembering nothing, choosing the given with a fierce and pointed will. In the light of Samvega, It feels appropriate to share some of the Buddha's last words just before his death. Words offered to his monastic and lay disciples to instill a sense of samvega in them, to exhort them to keep going along the path. And this particular quote is from a somewhat expanded version uh, of these words that comes from the Tibetan translation of the Parinibbana Sutta that I personally have found to be quite inspiring. O bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, do not grieve. Even if I were to live in the world for as long as a kalpa, our coming together would have to end. You should know that all things in the world are impermanent, are of a nature to decay. Coming together inevitably means parting. Do not be troubled, for this is the nature of life. Diligently practicing right effort, you must seek liberation immediately. Within the light of wisdom, destroy the darkness of ignorance. Nothing is secure. Everything in this life is precarious. Always wholeheartedly seek the way of liberation. All things in the world, whether moving or non-moving, are characterized by disappearance and instability. Stop now. Do not speak. Time is passing. I am about to cross over.
This is my final teaching. And in closing this evening's talk, we come back around to our opening questions. As Mary Oliver, in her own way, poses them in her poem called A Summer's Day. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean, the one who has flung herself out of the grass, the one who is eating sugar out of my hand, who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is, I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I have been doing all day. To me, tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life. Let's sit quietly for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.